Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. We are in week two of a series we're calling By Faith, the Sequel. And the reason we're calling it the sequel is because it's the second time we are in this series. Uh, these two words, by faith, they have been our theme for 2022. Holy Spirit breathed those into us at the beginning of the year. And we spent some time talking about those two words and looking at Hebrews chapter 11, what's known as the, the hall of faith and the lives of these great men and women in history past that did these amazing things as a result of their faith. And we considered what has God called us to do by faith? Uh, ultimately, we know that God did not call a bunch of men and women in history past to be the only ones who live by faith. But how many know he's called every single one of us to live a life filled with faith, to step out of the boat, to take the risks, to believe for the impossible, to elevate our expectations. As the scripture tells us, we are to live by faith and not by sight. And so we believed that at the beginning of the year, but as we approached our anniversary, I could not shake the thought that there was so much more God wanted to do in our midst before this year concludes. Not sometime in the future, but like in the next 90 days. More miracles that we haven't seen yet, more answers to prayer, more breakthrough, more freedom, more increase, more influence, more names inside this box like, like Ted Beasy that needs to come to Jesus, more people that, that need to know him as their savior. There's so much more that God wants to do now, but all of those things are ultimately unlocked by faith. And, and so we've decided to conclude this year the same way we started it. We're gonna come back to these two words and once again consider what does it look like to live by faith? Only this time, we're not looking at Hebrews chapter 11 once again. Uh, we are using a song that we released last week entitled By Faith, uh, a song and an anthem that is rooted in scripture. And we're looking at the lyrics of this song and the scriptures they represent as a catalyst to, to inspire every single one of the sermons for the remainder of this year. Uh, last week, if you recall, we looked at the beginning verse of that song where we talked about a woman who touched the hem of Jesus's garment and she found new life as a result of clinging to his robe. And I did a little magic trick where I had a really long robe that went all around the auditorium. Uh, but today, if you recall, we're going to talk about Jairus. Her story was kind of sandwiched there in his story and his sick daughter. And she was the proverbial cream filling in the miracle Oreo, if you will. And uh, today we're going to unpack the rest of his story as we consider a couple of other lyrics in the song, specifically the bridge that I won't sing it to spare you. It goes like this. Uh, the lame will walk the dead will rise, chains will break by faith in you. Today, we're gonna to focus on those three words, the dead will rise. So we're gonna to go to the scriptures and uh, fair warning, I got, a, I got a lot to read to you this morning. We're gonna, for anyone who wasn't here last week, we're gonna actually include the scriptures we unpacked last week as well because they do play a role in this larger story and I wanna make sure that we have the foundation right as we dive in. So bear with me as I uh, offer story time with Pastor Tim. Here we go. So then a leader of the local synagogue whose name was Jairus arrived. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him. My little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her. Heal her so that she can live. Jesus went with him and all the people followed, crowding around him. And here comes the cream filling. Uh, a woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She'd suffered a great deal from many doctors and over the years she'd spent everything she had to pay them, but she'd gotten no better. In fact, she'd only gotten worse. She had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe, for she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. 
Immediately, the bleeding stopped and she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. Jesus realized at once that healing power had gone out from him, so he turned around to the crowd and asked, who touched me? His disciples said, Jesus, look at the crowd pressing around you. How are you gonna ask who touched you? But he kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. While he was still speaking to her, messengers arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. They told him, your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. But Jesus overheard them and said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just have faith. Can we say that together? Don't be afraid, just have faith. Uh, there it is. Then Jesus stopped the crowd and wouldn't let anyone go with him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw much commotion and weeping and wailing. He went inside and he asked, why all the commotion? Why the weeping? The child isn't dead. She's only asleep. The crowd laughed at him, but he made them all leave. And he took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. Holding her hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, wake up. And the girl, who was 12 years old, immediately stood up and she began to walk around. They were overwhelmed and they were totally amazed. It's a good story. Uh, last week, I, I titled our conversation, Here Comes the Robe, as a result of a prophetic word I felt the Lord gave me in prayer as we were walking around this building. Uh, today, and as a result of what took place this last week, I'd like to title in similar fashion, Here Comes the Rain. Here Comes the Rain. Uh, let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to, to speak to us. Father, we thank you for your word, and I thank you for these stories that you've preserved in Scripture, not just to cause us to look back and celebrate what took place in the past, but to stir our faith for the present, to believe for the future. And, and Lord, I thank you that you are the God that can look at a situation and say, it's not dead, it's only sleeping. Just believe, just believe. I pray that faith would arise in every heart today, that as we go to your word and we study this, that our expectations would be elevated. And by the time we conclude and we open up these altars for prayer, I pray that many would see a miracle in their life released today. In Jesus' name. And the church said, amen, amen. I have uh, I've prided myself for years on the fact that I am not a prototypical three-point preacher. Uh, I grew up not idolizing preachers and not studying sermons. Uh, I had no desire to do what I'm doing right now. Uh, in fact, I thought most of the guys who did this are pretty lame, and I still kind of think that. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but uh, I had this image of the, you know, the three-point preacher, cheesy sermon guy. You know, he, he wore khaki pants, and he wore Tommy Bahama shirts, and he had Clark's Bostonian loafers, and no offense if you dress that way. Uh, and they always had these, like, really cheesily worded three-point sermons. Sometimes they rhymed, and it's like, come on, man. We're seeing right through this. And I didn't want to become that guy. Uh, as it turns out, as I've gotten older... I kind of like that guy. <laughs> and, and I might be that guy sometimes. Neutral colors are in right now. These shirts, they breathe really, really well while you're preaching, so it's great. I don't own any Clarks, but I do own my fair share of loafers. Hey. Uh, and uh, as evidenced by the sermon I prepared for today, sometimes the content just calls for three points. And today I got three points I'm going to share with us, because as I went to this text, 
I could not shake the fact that Jesus made three very specific statements to three very specific individuals or, or group of people. And I believe that there are some truths of faith revealed in each and every single one of those statements. So for you, the personality types that like three points, Laura, and uh, enjoy taking notes, uh, you're welcome. I'm here to serve. I love you. Uh, this year, you can buy me a gift card to you know, Burlington Coat Factory or JCPenney or Mervyn's if they're still out there somewhere. And <laughs> I'll go shopping for some new, some new loafers. Uh, but today, the first of these three cheesily worded points that I, wanna, I want us to consider is this. Don't run away. Don't run away. The first person that Jesus addresses in this, in this text in Mark chapter five is Jairus himself. He's just witnessed this woman receive healing after suffering for 12 years with an issue of blood. And after witnessing the healing, he's approached by some messengers from his house that say, Jairus, don't trouble the master any longer. Your daughter is no longer sick. She, she's now dead. Your situation is useless. And Jesus, upon hearing this information, he makes kind of an odd statement to Jairus, one that seems inconsistent with the information that, that they've just received. He looks at Jairus and he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Now, the reason that's such an odd statement to me is because generally, if we hear news about a dead loved one, fear is not the emotion that comes out. Like, like if I was to get news today that someone in my household had passed away, I don't think fear would be the first emotion I'd go to. I'd be devastated. I'd be overwhelmed with sadness. I'd be heartbroken, unless it was a cat, in which case I would have a different emotion. <laughs> but fear, fear is not how I would respond. And, and, and since fear is not how any rational, normal person would respond to the respond, to, to, upon hearing the news of death in their family, we should dig a little bit deeper into this text and, and consider why would Jesus use this language? What does he mean when he looks at Jairus and he says, do not be afraid? Uh, in the original text in the Greek, uh, when Jesus says this, he uses the word phobeo. Phobeo, and it's where we actually get our word phobia from. And the definition of this word in Greek is to put to flight or to scare away. To put to flight or to scare away. So phobeo carries with it this thought of, of retreat, to, to run away, to flee. So, so actually what Jesus is saying when he looks at this man upon hearing of his daughter's death, he's saying, hey, listen, I understand the information you just got is not great. I understand it's devastating. But here's my appeal to you. Do not phobeo. Don't run away. Do not buy into this opportunity to flee. I know you want to run now, but, but just stay here by my side. Do not run away. This is less about a feeling, and it's more about a fleeing. See, I've noticed something in, in, in my journey of faith, and, and maybe you've noticed the same in yours. Often when I find myself in the middle of trial, there seems to be a temptation to flee. When I find myself in the middle of a difficult situation, there's a temptation to run away. Whether it's you're facing divorce or you've gotten devastating news or the dream has died or the relationship is disintegrating or there's not enough resources, you name the trial, there is always an off-ramp presented to us by the enemy to run away from Jesus instead of running to him. In fact, I would say the greater the trial, the greater the temptation to run away. Remember here, Jairus, what happens when he hears that his daughter's sick? He runs to Jesus. He, he chases Jesus down because he understands, okay, I've heard that Jesus can heal the sick. But when the trauma escalates, 
When the situation has now gotten a little bit more out of hand, Jesus looks at him and he says, hey, hey, you ran to me to get healing from sickness. Don't run away from me now that she's dead. Often when the trauma escalates, the temptation increases. You could be walking with Jesus, addressing the very thing that brought you to him in the first place, but be interrupted by escalating trauma and find yourself wanting to run away. There seems to be this ever-present need to run. And sadly, because of my position, I have a front row seat to watch that time and time again. I've shared this many times before, I'll share it again. My least favorite part about this job is that as I stand on this stage, I can look at chairs that used to be occupied by people that were running after Jesus, that would lift their hands in worship, that were heading in the right direction, but because of some devastating news or a surprise death in the family or some traumatic event in their faith, they began to question everything and they took that convenient off-ramp being offered to them by the enemy. They said, ah, I just can't handle it anymore. I thought God would. My faith has now been challenged and fractured and I don't know how to stay close to Jesus. I'm just gonna tap out of this thing and run away. But listen to me, if you are even considering that this morning, if that thought is in your head anywhere, maybe you're walking through a really traumatic life event right now, if I could grab you by the collar before you make the worst decision of your life and I could look you in your eyeballs, I would echo the words of Jesus to Jairus. Don't run away. Do not run. Do not let the magnitude of what you're facing right now cause you to lose sight of the fact that you're standing next to the only one who can help you in the middle of that situation. Do not let the size of your problem eclipse the size and magnitude of your God. Do not run. Because listen, with every temptation to flee, there's also an invitation to faith. Oh, come on, I'm laying on the cheesy preacherisms right now, okay? With every temptation to flee, there's an invitation to faith. Jesus did not just look at Jairus and say, don't be afraid. What did he say afterwards? Just have faith. I invite you to look at me and believe that I still have the capacity to deal with death. There was an invitation to faith. I know Jesus only said three words here, and I might be reading between the lines a little bit, but man, I think there's a thousand things Jesus isn't saying that Jairus understands in this moment. Things like, hey, um, I know that you just got really bad news about the death of your daughter, but can you take five seconds and just think about what you just witnessed? Can you take five seconds and, and think about the magnitude of the miracle you just witnessed? How long was that woman suffering? Oh, for 12 years. How old's your daughter? Oh, she's 12 years old. So, so for every year that your daughter has been alive, this woman has been suffering. And in one moment, I healed her. In fact, when I healed her, what did I tell her healed her? Oh, I said, it's your faith that made you well. So when I appeal to you to have faith, I'm appealing to you on the basis that I just did something based on someone else's faith. Oh, and not to mention, what did I call her when I told her she was healed? I said, daughter, your faith has made you well. Yes, I care about my daughter and I care about your daughter and all of this is a tee up for you, Jairus. So don't run away. Look at the evidence sitting before you right now. I am able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you can ask, think or imagine. So don't run away, just have faith. And listen, I don't know what you're walking through right now. I don't know what devastating news landed on your doorstep this week or what impossible situation you're facing. But I know if you would take five seconds and you would just think about the Jesus that's standing next to you right now. 
If you would just think about the magnitude of what he's capable of, that he's healed before, that he has restored before, that he has set free before, that he has provided before, then in that moment, there will be a faith that arises in your heart and you won't phobeo. You will not run. Don't run. Don't run. Stay close. Don't run. Thank you, Justin. Number two. (laughs) Environment matters. Environment matters. The second group of people that Jesus addresses and speaks to in this story is a crowd of mourners that is gathered outside of Jairus' home, mourning the loss of his daughter. Look, Look what it says in Mark chapter five, verse 38. It says, when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw much commotion and weeping and wailing. He went inside and he asked, why all the commotion and weeping? The child isn't dead, she's only asleep. The crowd laughed at him, but he made them all leave and he took the girl's father and mother and the three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. I love this line from Jesus. I probably will not do it justice when I preach today because I'm not animated enough, but the girl is not dead, she's only asleep. I love that line. Not only does it stir my faith, it actually also makes me laugh a little bit when I hear it because I think about my daughter sitting in the front row and how I have to deal with her on any given weekday, trying to get her out of her bed before school. Any other parents have a kid who sleeps in a way that might be mistaken as death? Yeah. You know what I'm talking about, right? You walk in and like their tongue is out, their arms are like this. There might as well be a chalk line around them and covers are everywhere and you're shaking, but they're just not moving and yeah, that's, that's my, my oldest. My, young, my, my oldest is not like that. It's my youngest. My oldest is like, ding, hello, the day is here. I'm ready to go to school. Yeah, this one looks like she's dead in the morning. I, I, I'm gonna tell him. So like probably once a week, I will literally have to drag her out of her bed until she hits the wood floor. And, and I say the same thing to her every time I do it. Maybe you'll remember this phrase if you're old enough. I say, hey, uh, Senka, you dead? Yeah, man, name the movie. Cool runnings. Feel the rhythm. Feel the rhyme. Come on, boys. It's bobsled time. I'm watching that movie this afternoon. That's what I'm doing. (laughs) But this is not a mistaken slumbering child situation that Jesus walks upon in Capernaum this day. This daughter is actually dead. She's passed away. And in Jewish custom, when someone passed away, they would have professional mourners come to the home of the deceased and they would weep and they would wail loudly to the accompaniment of flutes and instruments. And the reason they do this is to create an environment where it was safe to mourn, an environment of, of, of weeping and wailing where the parents felt like they could join in and they weren't alone in their suffering. In a very practical way, it's how they mourned with those who were mourning. And this is the, the environment Jesus walks into this day. He walks up to the house with Jairus And there is this environment of death. But but Jesus looks at this environment, he makes a statement. He says, why all the commotion? This this girl is not dead. She's only asleep. But upon hearing that declaration, these mourners, they stop weeping and they start laughing. They mock Jesus. Why? Because they know the reality of what they're looking at. No, she's not sleeping, Jesus. She's dead. You're crazy. But what does Jesus do when he hears their declaration? He asks them to leave. 
When Jesus recognizes that the narrative of the environment he finds himself in is inconsistent with the miracle he wants to perform, he forces the doubters to leave. Listen, this is so important. If you're taking notes, please write this down. Your environment has the power to release or restrict your miracle. Your environment has the power to release or to restrict your miracle. And I know how Pentecostal that sounds. So let me back it up with some Bible for just a second. Remember when we read scripture, it's important to remember that the chapters and verses that we read were not there originally in the author's writings. They were added later for us so that it could be easier for us to refer to them and find scriptures. But when Mark wrote this, uh, this epistle, he, he, er, he did not write this, excuse me, this gospel, he did not write it with chapters and verses in mind. It was one cohesive work. And while our Bibles conclude this thought in verse 43, he continues to speak about an environment and the importance of an environment of faith in the very next verse, chapter six, verse one. Look at what he says. Jesus left that part of the country in Capernaum and he returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue and many who heard him were amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? Then they scoffed, just like the mourners a few verses earlier. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and his sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended and they refused to believe in him. Then Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them. Because of their unbelief, he could not do any miracles among them. When Jesus found himself in an environment of doubt, his power was somehow restricted. I don't know how this works. I don't know why God has created it this way, but for some reason, God has mandated that the environment be one conducive to a miracle. That faith must be present. If faith is not present, then somehow the miraculous power of God is kept at bay. You know what that tells me? That tells me that your environment matters a lot more than you realize. That tells me the people that are around you and the narratives you're listening to, they matter a lot more than you realize because your environment has the ability to restrict or to release your miracle. It also tells me why Jesus does what he does here in Mark chapter five. It tells me that the reason he excused the mourners from the situation he found himself in was because he was afraid that their doubt would pollute the faith of Jairus and his wife. He said, no, if, if we're gonna see this girl resurrected, I can't have all of this noise and all of this doubt out here. But he didn't stop there, did he? No, he didn't just remove doubt. He also invited faith into the environment. Who did he bring in? Peter, James, John. A couple of disciples that had seen some stuff before. Some guys that had been walking with him for a little bit of time and they'd seen the sick healed. They'd seen blind eyes open. They'd seen the crippled hand released. They'd seen the lame man get up off of his mat. They'd seen Jesus speak to the waves and command them to be still. They had seen some miracles. So Jesus said, okay, I need to get doubt out of the environment and I need to fill it with some people of faith. And now that the environment is such that I can do a miracle, buckle up, buttercup, here we go. Environment matters. So, so, so let me ask you, what does your environment look like right now? I'm not seeing God move in my life. What does your environment look like right now? 
Are, are you surrounded by doubting mourners? Or do you got some faith-filled disciples in your life? Some people that are speaking the language of scripture. Some people that are saying, no, God is able. Because listen, it's hard to believe for your city or for your nation when all you've got in the background is political pundits spewing out poison about the condition of things or the narratives of your favorite news organization. Someone smile at me. It's hard to believe for your marriage to survive and thrive when all you got around you is people who've been divorced three times in your family and friends that are agreeing with your offense against your spouse. It's hard to believe for your healing when all you're doing is reading the diagnosis over and over and over again or trolling WebMD and becoming a hypochondriac. It's hard to have faith when you are in an environment of doubt. But if you get around some faith people, if you get around some people that can say, hey, listen, I know your situation looks impossible. I know what you got in the mail. I've seen the diagnosis, but I know that Jesus is still able to address every single one of those needs. And with one word, in one moment, he can turn things around. <sighs> Suddenly your environment shifts. And when you've got a faith-filled environment, watch how God can do a miracle. I've shared this story before, uh, but I was reminded um, this last week by my pastor in a gathering that we were in that uh, it's important to tell the stories that speak to God's faithfulness over and over and over again. In Jewish culture, they tell them every single year because when we hear about the faithfulness of God, something like faith stirs up on the inside of us. So I apologize if this is repeat for anybody, but the day was July 12th, 2014. It was a Saturday. I was sitting in my office and I was preparing a sermon that I was supposed to preach the next morning at our church at the time. And uh, I got a phone call and when I looked at my phone, it was a friend of mine who was expecting a child. Uh, for context, him and his wife had had a number of miscarriages. They'd lost a number of babies and we'd been praying for her to be able to carry a child full term. And uh, she was nearing the end of her pregnancy. She could have had the baby any day. And so when I saw his name on the phone, I immediately thought to myself, okay, this is the good news. The baby's finally here. But when I picked up the phone, it was clear that that was not the call. He was weeping on the other side. He couldn't even speak. And all he could muster up to say was, Tim, you have to come to the hospital. So I got into my car and I rushed over to the hospital, which was only a couple of miles away and walked into the waiting room of Kaiser and his whole family was there. They'd shown up to celebrate the arrival of this baby boy that they'd been waiting for. Uh, but now they were all mourning and in tears. His mom came up to me and she threw her arms around me and buried her head into my shoulder and just, just cried. I still didn't know what had happened. Um, but a couple of minutes later, a nurse came to me and she said, are you the pastor? And I said, yeah, that's, that's me. And she's like, okay, follow me. We're gonna head back to the room. So as we get on the other side of the door of the waiting room, before we get to the room where my friend was sitting, she grabs my shoulder, she looks me in the eyeballs and she says, listen, I know how you guys are. <laughs> She said, I know that your job is to, to bring hope and to encourage, but I need to be honest with you. Their baby has been dead for 20 minutes. So I don't want you going in there and telling them that everything's gonna be all right or praying for, for something that isn't going to happen. Our job is hard enough as it is right now. Do not go in there and tell them everything's gonna be okay. I said, okay. So she, she brings me into the room and my friend is sitting there on the hospital bed just weeping. I sit down next to him, put my arm around him, kind of wait for the, the tears and the crying to subside. And I look him in his eyeballs. I say, hey, listen, I heard the news. I know what's going on. I have one question. How do you want to pray? 
And he looked at me and said, Tim, I want my baby boy to live. I said, okay. So here's what I did. I walked over to the door. I told the nurse and all the doctors to not come anywhere near. I shut the door. And me and my buddy, we got down onto our knees in that hospital room. And we prayed for a miracle. We contended. God, I, I know this is not your will. You did not bring this baby this far to see its life cut short. We prayed for a miracle. A couple of moments later, against my wish, the nurse knocked on the door. I said, what? <laughs> she cracks open the door and she says, uh, his, his wife is awake. I need to bring you guys into the room so that we can have a conversation together. I said, okay. So the two of us went into this other room where his wife was being held. And uh, we sat down. A few moments later, the doctor walked into the room and he said, uh, all right, I'm gonna be honest with you. It wasn't good. Your baby was stillborn and he, 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 didn't, he didn't make it. For 20 minutes, we tried to resuscitate and despite our best efforts, we could not get a pulse. We could not get a heartbeat. However, come on, how many love a, However. <laughs> however. After 20 minutes, somehow a faint heartbeat showed up on the EKG. And we've been able to stabilize the child, but I don't want you to get your hopes up because when a child is without a heartbeat, hasn't been able to breathe for 20 minutes, the, the possibility of long-term disabilities or brain function, I, like there's, there's some problems in the future. I just, I need you to understand that. So we're gonna do our best. We're gonna send your son to Kaiser in Oakland and we're gonna try as best we can. But I want you to be prepared for the fact that he's probably not going to make it. And if he does, there's a really good chance he's not gonna be able to do a lot on his own. I said, okay. <laughs> I'll spare you all the details. But seven days later, my friends walked out of that hospital room in Kaiser, Oakland with a healthy baby boy. He's eight years old today. And when you look at this kid, you would not notice anything because he's completely and totally fine. Why? Because a desperate father and a man of faith decided to create an environment in a hospital room where we were not interrupted by the doubt of a nurse or the mourning of some parents outside the door. And we just said, I'm ridiculous enough to believe that God is still able to bring dead things back to life. And because we contended in faith, God did a miracle. Listen, sometimes you just gotta close the door to every other voice. You gotta get doubt out of your environment. You gotta get naysayers out of your environment. You gotta get the news out of your environment. And you just have to get down on your knees and say, I trust that my God is able to bring dead things back to life. Environment matters. Environment matters. Maybe I am a Pentecostal preacher. <laughs> Now that your faith is stirred, number three, I'll invite the worship team to come. It's time to wake up. Slap somebody next to you. Come on, tell them. It's time to wake up. <laughs> the, uh, the third person that Jesus speaks to in this story is the dead girl herself. It's the daughter. It says in the conclusion of this story in Mark chapter five, verse 41, holding her hand, Jesus said to her, 
Talitha Kuam, which means little girl, wake up. And the girl who was 12 years old immediately stood up and she began to walk around. Here's what's interesting to me. Jesus could have used any phrase to get this 12-year-old girl out of bed. He, he could have said, as he said to Lazarus, get up out of your grave. He, he could have said, I command you in the name of Je my name, <laughs> get out of that bed. <laughs> in fact, he probably didn't have to say anything. As we saw in the previous verses, the woman with the issue of blood just touched his garment. It says he grabbed her hand. He probably could have just grabbed her hand and she would have walked out of that bed. But Jesus chooses to continue on with his confession of slumber by speaking to this little girl, Talitha Kuhn. Little girl, sweetheart, it's time to wake up. It's time to get out of bed. You've been there long enough. It's time to wake up. This tells me something, something that will completely change our perspective on whatever problem we are facing right now. It's simple, but it's powerful. Sometimes that which we think is dead is merely sleeping to Jesus. Sometimes those things that we have written off as good as dead are merely waiting to be awakened with a word from God. And here's the deal. I can look around this room and I will not point at any people, but I know that there are folks in here that have a situation that looks like it's as good as dead. You got a marriage that's hanging on by a thread. You got a diagnosis that there's no treatment for. You got a family member that used to serve God and they're really distant right now and their faith looks as good as dead. A dream that's dead, a business deal that's dead. There's a lot of stories and you're already etching out the tombstone with the demise in mind. But may we remember the words of Jesus in this text. It's not dead, it's only sleeping. It might look dead, it might look impossible. I understand what you're seeing, I know the news you've gotten, but you serve the God. The entirety of our faith is based on the fact that we serve a man who was dead, but three days later resurrected out of that grave. So I don't care how dead it looks, he can walk up to that thing and command it. It's time to wake up. It's time to wake up. One word from Jesus can change everything. And, and that is why I have titled this chat the way I titled it today. Here comes the rain. Here comes the rain. As I mentioned last weekend, the title and the conclusion of the sermon last week was simply a prophetic word that God gave me as I was walking around this building. It came with a scripture and it came with an image. And, and just so you know, that's not normal for me at all. I wish it was. It would save me so much time. And, 20 hours a week of sermon prep could just be gone. If I could just, okay, God, what do you got now? <laughs> Download, that'd be awesome. It doesn't work like that. If you're looking to preach, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> but I think as a sign and a seal of what he's doing in our community right now, this week, once again, as I was praying and studying through this text, I heard a phrase, I saw an image, and I saw scripture. The, the phrase was, here comes the rain. The image was this. 
something known as a superbloom. For those unfamiliar with that term, a superbloom is a rare event that takes place in a desert climate when there is an unusual amount of rain that falls before the spring. One of the most recent in California is the one in Death Valley, a place that has known, is known worldwide as one of the deadest places on earth. Uh, Death Valley recently experienced one of these. And I, in fact, I have a photo of Death Valley just so you can gain some perspective, but that's what it looks like most of the time. A dry desert wasteland, cracked ground, no life in sight. But, but what you don't see in that picture is that beneath the surface, there's some seeds. Seeds that birds have dropped for years as they've flown over the desert. Seeds that have blown in. Seeds, millions, that are just buried beneath the ground waiting to be awakened. And if the conditions are right, if there's enough rain in the fall, then something significant takes place in the desert. All that dry ground gets broken up. The water makes its way through those cracks. And what once looked like a valley of death begins to look like this. Beautiful life teeming in a desert space. But here's the thing, those seeds were there all along. Th those seeds were just waiting to be awakened. They were present beneath the surface and it looked like death. But with the right amount of rain, with the right amount of rain, every one of those things was awakened and the beauty was visible to everybody. Here comes the rain, here comes the rain. Ezekiel chapter 43. Behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone with his glory. His voice was like the sound of many waters. His voice was like the sound of many waters. Here comes the rain, here comes the rain. I believe the Holy Spirit is speaking over our community right now in the same way that Jesus stood by the bedside of a dead girl and spoke a word of life over her. And he is saying the rain is coming over a desert space. It looked dry, it looked dead, it looked impossible. But right now in the name of Jesus, I am speaking over that sickness. I am speaking over that marriage. I am speaking over that wayward child. I'm speaking over that thing that you have written off as good as dead and watch as a word comes and there's life. I believe that's a word for you today. And we're gonna respond to it this morning. As I shared last week, the whole purpose of this series is to create space, an environment of faith where we can be able to begin to contend for some miracles. So I'm gonna have all of us stand to our feet in just a second. We're gonna worship for just a little bit longer and we're gonna create an environment of faith in this space. And then before we conclude, we're gonna ask if anyone needs a miracle in their life to come forward and receive prayer. We're gonna stay at these altars and we're gonna pray as long as we need to. Uh, but before I have you stand and, and, and we worship one more time, I, I'd like to ask you to bow your heads real briefly. And I do wanna pray for one specific group of people before we, we go back into worship. And that's the group of people that, that would say, Tim, the, 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 the life that I need to experience, the resurrection that I need to experience is the one that 
Jesus offered so freely through salvation. I had this picture this week as I was praying for people that were far from God in our community today. And I saw like that desert, just seeds that have been scattered in your heart. Maybe you've been sitting in church for a while or maybe you've got a family member that's been over and over again telling you need to give your life to Jesus or get things right with Jesus. And every one of those things is like a seed. And they've been sitting in the, the dry ground of your heart. I believe that this weekend is your moment for the reign of Jesus to fall on that heart and allow life to sprout up in, in your spirit. And if that's you today, if you know that God's calling you to get things right with him before you conclude this service, I wanna pray a prayer of commitment with you. But I always like to see who I'm praying with. If, if you need to pray that with me today, would you just quickly lift up your hand and look at me so that I can pray with you before we leave? Yeah, I got you, bro. Right on, man. Yeah, right there. Yeah, ma'am, right there. Awesome. Yeah, got you there in the back. Awesome, right here, yeah. Hallelujah. All right, let's, let's all pray this together as a family, shall we? Say, Jesus, today I give you my life. I thank you for giving yours for mine. I choose to follow you. I believe you died on a cross to forgive me of my sins and you resurrected to give me new life. May I be your disciple from this day forward and walk in your ways until I see you in eternity. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Come on, let's thank God for every single one of those praying that prayer along with us today. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we wanna pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.